Well, here we are in our anniversary service, and we're looking for what will the ministry look like as we're going forward into the 21st century as we are, and then as we grow older and young people come into the church, what's, what's the, does the future hold? Try to reach out, reach people that need the gospel. Will that change who we are as we reach out? Um, it does seem that the times in which we live are different than any time before. Life is so fast-paced. Communication is instant. There's so many things to dazzle the eyes. It appears that memories are shorter now. Attention spans are shorter. Um, Soundbite theology is out there. Um, everyone is texting and tweeting, and everything comes fast with visual stimulus. And with all of that changing the way people literally think and what they can endure or listen to, will that change us and the way we approach ministry, uh, the way we have been doing ministry for the last 21 years? We are in unique times, but we know we have a message that people need to hear. Um, we're in a time also where the church is changing. It's allowing any message in the front door, and it's changing the evangelical church. So we ch- change in the message, change in the method. They're both going on. Widespread, wide swath of churches. This is happening. You see it around you. Many of you have visited those churches, and you were disappointed with the lack of Bible teaching, the lack of talking about Christ and His cross. You landed here. You have a story to tell um, It's all over the place. It's the way ministry is going now. Uh, People believe that to talk about the negative things of the Bible or to talk too long in the Bible is basically ministry suicide. They don't do it because the people won't come back. The people won't come back. They can't build their churches and build their ministries. Is that going to change us? Are we going to need to mold with the times? Are we going to need to fit into that? Make no mistake about it, we are in postmodern times. Postmodernism has been defined in a number of ways. Maybe the best way to describe it is that it is a mood that people have these days that truth is not worth fighting for anymore because there is no one truth. Everyone can have their own truth, and if that's the case, why are we trying to be so definitive and argue doctrine and all the rest of that? Just live and let live. It's basically a mood more than it is something that you can pin down as a doctrine. Um, Postmodernism dovetails very nicely with pluralism. Pluralism is the idea that there are many ways to God. There are many ways to God that live and let live, let people choose their way to God, and it produces this postmodern mindset that if you try to argue for a truth, that's a problem. Everything else is fine, just don't think that your way, whatever that way is, is the only way. Back in the modern time, which I was born, we argued about truth. We thought truth was valuable. We didn't throw truth out. We thought that there are things that are logical, there are things that are factual, there are things that are historical, and they were worth not getting angry about, but arguing for, uh, promoting, to guard it, protect it, teach it. There was truth, and then there was error. Now we're in a time where Everything is true, evidently, even if it contradicts one another. So people feel they're beyond all of that modern debate. Believe what you want to believe. Everyone in their own way is right. So we would ask the question again, if that's the way the mindset is of the people we're trying to reach, if that's the way things are, 
then do we need to change as a church? Do we need to modify the way we do the message? Do we need to tone it down? Do we need to make it shorter? Do we need to make it happier to fit into the culture and the way, the way people are here? There are a lot of churches that are answering that question with a resounding yes, and they're fleshing out the way they're doing church, and their churches in, in many cases are growing numerically amazingly fast. There was no manual, by the way, in graduating from a seminary where they said, teach expositionally to your people. There was no manual about how to plant a church doing that. I had no model and I had no manual. What happens when people don't want expository preaching and they're yawning five minutes into what you're saying? How do you keep them and get them to come back? To a large degree, they did not come back. Most, the vast majority of visitors did not come back. They did not want to listen to that kind of of teaching. They didn't really want that. They wanted church to be entertaining. They wanted it to be softer and lighter. People are picking up on that mood, and they're changing their entire approach to ministry. People have wondered, are we going to change? Well, if I was going to change, I would have changed back then because nobody was coming. <laughs> I'm exaggerating a bit. There were some that came, but I mean, it just didn't look like a promising situation many times. And I'm grateful for the faithful people that stuck through it all those years. You need to you need to hug them and thank them because they had to, they had to endure a lot in those early years. Um, is it conceivable to even take an old book like which we have, hold it up each week and teach it bountifully, then expect people to listen to that whole message and then leave and take heed to what was preached? Like I said, many churches have concluded that's not realistic. They throw in the stories. They throw in the humor. It's lighthearted things. It's really motivational speaking. It's what it is. Let's get you motivated. Let's hype you up, get you to endure for the next few days and come back. They're very talented at motivational speaking. Um, they dare not sound authoritative. That's the death knell. Do not sound like what you're saying is authoritative. Don't stand behind a pulpit like this and tell people, thus saith God. Don't do that. Whatever you do, don't do that. Walk the stage, entertain people, make it plexiglass, whatever you have to do to make them feel happy and make them feel like they're in charge. They eat the popcorn, you are the entertainer. And that's kind of how it is. Share some positive thoughts. In fact, many of these churches can barely even call what they're teaching Christian. It's more positive. You notice that? We don't have Christian, Christian radio stations anymore. We have positive hits. What's that? I mean... The Beach Boys are positive, you know. What is that? It, it's, it's appealing to the politically correct crowd. Don't say anything negative about anybody's belief system. They want to make messages relevant to their life. Relevancy has led them to conformity to the current spirit of the age, postmodernism. They have become like the world to win the world. But unlike Paul's strategy when he said, I became like a Jew to win the Jews, I became like a Gentile to win the Gentiles, he was talking about things that were not essential. He was talking about things that just were, were cultural. He was not talking about becoming worldly to win the world. When you become worldly to win the world, the world has won you. You've conformed to them. If you listen to the Bible, not only about what the Bible is saying, 
but about how to communicate the Bible to other people. In other words, your methods. You end up rejecting that way of doing church in the world's ways. You reject it. You come to some very different and I think refreshing conclusions about what to preach and how to preach. How to teach the Bible, yes, even to our generation. So on our anniversary Lord's Day, I want to kind of reinforce for you, maybe particularly those who are newer to our church, what is the mission, what is the message, what is the method? It's one we've been following roughly for 21 years, and um, it has a lot to do with you and what your convictions are and what you believe church should look like when you bring someone to church, what, what they're going to hear and what, uh, they're going, what you're going to expect that they're going to hear. One text, you might not think of it as an ideal text for this, but I believe it's a beautiful text that brings out the proper thinking about preaching and teaching is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if you turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. I'm going to read that and explain a little bit about the context in the letter and how this applies to us. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 8. Just three verses, but a lot of truth in it. Paul's writing, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. Verse 7, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, this is the Apostle Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. He is in it correcting a lot of problems that this church had. The very first problem Paul corrected back in chapter 1 was a spirit of divisiveness and pride, a sectarian spirit. That's in verses 10 through 17. To correct that spirit in the Corinthian church, he held up the cross and said, when I came to you, I preached this cross, and it teaches of a humble Savior, and it teaches of a wisdom that is completely at odds with the kind of wisdom you find anywhere in the world. No matter which quarter of the world you come from, the the wisdom of taking a Savior and having killed and crucified on a cross to save mankind is absolutely ludicrous to the world's way of thinking, but it is God's wisdom. And when I came to you, I came with that wisdom. It was not a popular message. It was not an easy message to listen to. But that is the message that I came. He said, in chapter 2, I determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him what? Do you remember? Crucified. So he said, I brought that message to you. The Jews hated the idea of a Messiah that was killed by the Romans. The Gentiles and Greeks thought it was a ridiculous idea. But it was an idea and a message that I hammered home when I came to you. And that's what he's writing about in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and he's hoping it kind of humbles their pride a little bit. He wrote, actually, that God likes to choose the lesser and the weaker things, the way the world considers it, the people that are maybe not as popular, not as well-educated, not as well-off, not wealthy. He loves to take those kind of people and do a special work through them to confound those that think that they are elite to show them they really don't have any power and they don't really have any wisdom. And he wrote that. 
He said, when I came to you in Corinth, I didn't come as one of those really talented Greek orators that would travel from city to city and they would show their elocution and they would, they would give their oratory and they would speak so well and they were motivational speakers. They were very talented at rhetoric. They were very talented at moving emotions and a talent with words. He said, when I came to you, I did not come at all like that. I came in weakness. I came in fear. I came in trembling. And I preached a Jew who died on a cross, a Roman execution log. And that's what I brought. He just preached the cross. It wasn't an emotional appeal. It's not that he didn't have any passion. It's not that he didn't have any emotion. But there was reasoning in it. There was truth that the people had to sit and listen to. And they had to mull over in their mind. They had to follow a train of thought. He expected them to listen in that culture. As we arrive here in verses 6 through 8, Paul is still helping the Corinthians and us, because we're readers of the letter, to learn why Scripture, scriptural truths, doctrines of the New Testament must be taught diligently, no matter the mindset of the people. No matter the culture, no matter what is the the newest fad, no matter what the spirit of the age is, these doctrines must be taught faithfully and must be taught well. In other words, Paul gets even deeper into the same theme he's been dealing with back in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2. In verses 6 through 8, he's even getting deeper. He's giving the reasoning behind why he was preaching what he was preaching. And that's why I brought it here for us to learn from this passage today because I think it solidifies our convictions about why we're doing church and ministry the way we are. Please notice, by the way, that verses 6 through 8 are bracketed by the work of the Holy Spirit that is mentioned in verse 5. Do you see that? And then also, if you go forward in verses 9 through 14, it's all about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit is doing. Verse 14, if you look at that just a moment, says that a natural man, that means an unsaved man, a man that's not been born again by the Spirit of God, a natural man who doesn't have the Holy Spirit cannot even understand these spiritual truths that we preach. Can't even get it. It's not that they don't get it or won't get it. That's true. They don't want to get it, but it's true they can't get it. Chew on that a little. The truths that come from the Holy Spirit of God, the natural man can't get them, can't understand them. Now, what is significant about that for modern ministry? If Christians and churches today understand how the Holy Spirit actually works, they would be fully committed to the greatest, most comprehensive Bible teaching ministry in their churches and leave to the Holy Spirit who gets it and who doesn't get it. One of the reasons why all of the doctrine is toned down and the cross is moved out of the center if it's mentioned at all is that they're trying to turn their churches into reaching unbelievers. They turned the church, which is for believers, into a church that's for unbelievers. But the church was never for unbelievers. Unbelievers do come to church. They're welcome. We love them. Sometimes they get saved. But the church is made up of believers. The teaching and the instruction is for, it shouldn't be rocket science, believers. We gather for the saints, someone said, and we scatter for the ain'ts. That's why we go out into the world to reach them there. This passage really is akin to 2 Timothy 4.2, where it says, preach the word to Timothy, he's a pastor, preach the word, and then it goes on to say, in season and, do you remember, out of season. What does in season mean? When they want to listen. What does out of season mean? When they don't want to listen. 
When they don't want to listen, you don't change the content. You don't change the intensity of what you say. In fact, you probably have to up it harder. It is a terrifying thing to think that if just simple preaching, like the kind that we do in a church like this, by any expositor of God's Word, were brought into many evangelical churches, it wouldn't even be tolerated. They would either leave the church or they would kick the preacher out. That's a terrifying thing to think about. That means that these churches, many of them are filled with unregenerate people that do not want the Word of God in their hearts. Preach the Word to them. When they're listening, preach the word when they're not listening. So today, and I'm going to do this as quickly as I can, but you have to give me a little bit of grace because of the time. We have four truths about the Holy Spirit-empowered Bible preaching and teaching that's true for any age. Four truths about the Holy Spirit's empowered Bible teaching or preaching for any age, and you can apply this not just for what's done in the pulpit, but for wherever you teach the Word of God. These truths transcend every age, every generation, including ours, and hopefully you'll perceive why as we move along. Truth number one, first truth, in the beginning of verse six, Bible teaching imparts God's wisdom. Look at verse six. It says, yet we do speak wisdom. He denigrated the wisdom of the world, and then he said, yet, I'm not trying to say that we just say dumb things. He's saying we actually do speak wisdom. The we in this context is Paul and his ministry, the other apostles and the teachers that came along with him that preached the gospel. So this is an example of what Bible teachers are supposed to do. They are supposed to teach wisdom. The wisdom refers to the wisdom of God. What's that? the wisdom of the cross. God devised that he was going to reach mankind with a message, and that message was going to center on the cross of Christ and then his resurrection, that cross that's so despised by the world. That's God's wisdom. God's wisdom, not the world's wisdom. This is what we preach. In other words, the gospel, the truths about Jesus, the doctrines about his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. What does all of that mean for the church age? What are we supposed to be doing? What is God doing in this world? Those doctrines, those truths, that wisdom we preach. In other words, the New Testament. We preach the New Testament, which is just the implications of all those doctrines fleshed out. Paul is saying we do Bible preaching and teaching. We teach New Testament truths, which is based on Old Testament reality and truth. By the way, to dispel a notion here, a lot of people think, well, our culture is just so unique and it's really hard to reach people. There was pluralism in Roman and Greek society as well. A lot of people don't realize this, but there was a plurality of religions in Roman society. They were all over the place in terms of what they believed. There was Stoicism and mysticism. There was Judaism. There were all these different gods. There were things that came in from the East. It was a hodgepodge of beliefs. So when Paul and the other apostles were preaching the gospel and planting churches, they were running into people that were all over the place in terms of their attention span. Some of them were on all kinds of drugs that they had associated with their religions. There was all kinds of, you know, people that were staunch into their religion or people that weren't into religion at all. It was in a lot of ways like our culture today. They enjoyed being entertained. They enjoyed nice storytelling and all of that. They had that as well. Many were illiterate. Many were not well-educated. If you come along in a society like that, like Paul, and you had this strong, authoritative, sustained kind of teaching, how would they receive that? The answer is many of them rejected it, but many of them also accepted it. 
Paul says, in the midst of all of that diversity and all that opposition and all that confusion, of all of that pluralism, we speak God's wisdom. We speak biblical truth. Who would listen to such a message? Well, Paul already showed back in chapter 1 that the Jews stumbled over the whole idea of a crucified Messiah king. They hated that thought. Uh, The Jews, by and large, would not listen to that message. What about the Greeks, the Gentiles? They thought the idea of a a man dying on a criminal's cross to save all the world, executed, by the way, by the Romans, was such a foolish message. Who would ever believe that? Who would ever think up that? I mean, if you come up with a message that you're trying to promote and you're trying to get people to believe and you're trying to get a following, that's like the, the worst idea that you could come up with. A cross? Pick up your cross and follow me? An executioner's tool? How's that going to fly? How are you going to make any money off of that message going town to town? Most of them didn't want to listen to it. After they were, you know, coming, there's the crowd. What is this idle babbler having to say? You remember what the the philosophers did on Mars Hill when Paul got to the point where he talked about the resurrection? He's like, ah, forget it. They're not listening to this. But sometimes some are going to listen. Verse 6 goes on. We speak it among, who's going to listen to this, those who are mature. Some are going to listen to God's wisdom in Bible teaching. Who? The mature. Wait, you mean like only the really mature Christians listen to this kind of Bible teaching? No, don't mean that at all. Mature in this context means a believer in Jesus Christ, a believer in the truth. Those who have accepted the wise message of the cross, that's those who are saved. That's every single believer. Listen, Paul is not trying to make a division of two kinds of believers, one group that's a mature believer and another group that is immature believing. He he is not arguing that only mature Christians listen to good Bible preaching and teaching. He's using the term mature here for all Christians. Because the mature are equated in this very passage, if you look at it, with those who have inside of them the Spirit of God, verse 12. Those who love God, verse 9, and had the truth revealed to them, verse 10. The unsaved are the ones that think the cross is foolishness. That was back in chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. The unsaved do not understand the things of the Spirit of God, chapter 2, verse 14. The wisdom that Paul was preaching was not some sophisticated wisdom for only a few select believers. It's the same wisdom that Paul has been writing about and speaking about since chapter 1. It's the wisdom of believing in Jesus Christ crucified. All believers accept that message. If you don't accept that message, you're not even a Christian. You say, yes, but later, pastor, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, in like chapter 3 and verse 1, he calls the people there in Corinth that were were in the church, he calls them infants and he calls them fleshly. Yes, that is true, he does. That is because that church needed a lot of correction and that's how that church was acting. They had been given the truth and they had accepted the truth, but they were unfortunately acting sometimes like unsaved people. That happens in the church. In some ways, they were acting like unsaved people. But all believers, by definition, have accepted the truth of the cross. And that's why Paul appealed to them. When you get to 2 Corinthians, you realize, though this church had problems, they responded to that message. They realized and thought it through and thought about the cross, and they grew from the correction that Paul gave them. All Christians believe in the wisdom of God, and in this sense, are the mature. They are the mature. Dr. Morris, in his commentary puts it succinctly, those who have welcomed 
the message of the cross are the mature. Well, then why does Paul decide to use that terminology, the mature, here? To put down those in the world who think they are so mature. Do you get it? He's borrowing their terminology, wisdom, maturity, insight, all of this talk that the Greeks and their religions had where they would rise to higher planes and they, they, would, they would think of themselves as more elite and more educated and more understanding of the way the world is. And he takes all of that and he basically says, they're fools, you're the wise, you are the mature. You're the ones who've had the things of the Spirit of God revealed to you. You are that category. He's putting them down. They know nothing of the eternal Spirit of God. In fact, later he says, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God so that we will know the things freely given to us by God. They know nothing of the things of God. We do. Please remember that the New Testament writers know nothing of different grades of Christians. In the very letter where Paul is trying to say you're all one in Christ, you've all been baptized into Christ, he wouldn't be trying to divide believers into the mature and into the immature. That's just not what you find in the New Testament. We're all growing. Some of us are a little further along the way in the pathway. Some of us have been in Christ a little bit longer, but we're not a different category of Christian. We're still all the same kind of Christian. We're all those who've received the things of the Spirit of God. So we do teach wisdom, and we teach it to believers, all believers. All believers can accept and enjoy copious Bible teaching if they just will give it a try. It's like when you were told to like spinach. There's a lot of good stuff in spinach. But some people don't want it. But if they try it, they learn to enjoy it and their body benefits from it. It's true of every believer. Every believer that takes time to let the Word of God sink in their mind and their heart can benefit from it. After all, what does it say in Colossians 3.16? Let the Word of Christ be sprinkled into your minds. Is that what it says? Those of you that know that passage? Let the Word of Christ dwell what? Richly. That means a lot. It means the Word has to be richly put into your mind. Do you realize how much time you spend each week listening to the message of the world? A little here, granted. A little there. A little here. Have you ever thought about how much that message sinks into your mind and how little time we get to get it out of your mind and get it replaced with the Bible? Copious Scripture teaching is what you need. Churches who dumb down... Bible teaching in hopes of getting a good effect, don't understand how the Holy Spirit changes lives. Listen, if someone is saved, they have already accepted the most foolish message that the world will ever hear, and that is the message of the cross. It's God's wisdom. It's the world's foolishness. But remember, the foolishness of God is greater than what? Men, right? The foolishness of God, if we can even say that in a reverent way is greater than any wisdom that men come up with. The smallest amount of Bible teaching is better than any degree you can get out there. It just is way above the wisdom of the world. If you can accept the cross, you can accept any Bible teaching. You've already got it. You can learn from it. Now, the second reason we teach the Bible this way in our age Second reason is Bible teaching is desperately needed. That's kind of the second part of verse 6. A wisdom, he immediately clarifies, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age. The however is pretty important. 
Paul has been laboring in this entire passage to show that he's not speaking about the world's wisdom. He's speaking about a greater kind of a wisdom. The world does not have this wisdom. The wisdom does not originate with them. It doesn't come from their halls of learning. They didn't get it through their science. It doesn't fit their way of thinking anyways. God's wisdom is vastly different. He did that on purpose. God wanted a message that was going out that was hard to accept and hard to believe so that it would work in conjunction with whoever he chose in his sovereignty to open their eyes and see it and understand it. They would be saved and they would get it. The fact that the Bible's message is so different from everything else that people hear back then, the Middle Ages, now, That is to be expected. God and the way he thinks is so different than the way fallen humanity thinks. Fallen humanity has fallen in the footsteps of Satan who gave his doctrine to humanity and humanity took it and believed it and accepted. And God says, that's not my mind. That's not my doctrine. My doctrine is very different. So this message is not of the age today. And that's what makes New Testament teaching so special. When people say, what are you doing in your church to be relevant? The answer is we're teaching the Bible. Yeah, but that's an old book. Yeah, but that old book was written by God. And he made every man, woman, and child that is in there, and he knows what their needs are. The Bible doesn't need to be made relevant. It needs to be listened to. And when it's listened to, you find out it is relevant. It's not of this ion, this age, this present world, this entire church span of time, nor of the earthly rulers. Notice they crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't get it, down in verse 8. Human rulers, human rulers of this age, he says, they're passing away. Why would you follow them? Why would you listen to them? What's happening to these rulers who who stand in front of people and they, they try to lead us and they try to teach us what is true? What is happening to them? God says over and over, they're passing away. They're ending. You know, there comes a point in time where you have to realize when you study this book and the Spirit of God illumines your mind to the truths of this book, you're way ahead of all your teachers. You're way ahead of every teacher, every ruler, every leader that is out there. David said, I'm wiser than the aged because of your law. It's true. I remember I was in college. I was recently saved. It was about maybe a year and a half in. I was reading the Bible, and I got to thinking about all the teachers I had had in high school and all the teachers I had had in junior high and elementary school and even the teachers in a church that wasn't teaching the gospel, all these people I looked up to. And I thought I was being proud. I was walking along, and I was thinking, oh, my goodness, if this is really true, all this stuff in the Bible is really true that I'm learning, it puts me way ahead of them. It's like I have to stop. In some ways, I have to stop listening to them became clearer and clearer to me that this is way beyond them. And that's true. The leaders and the teachers of this world, they're passing away. Kat argeo, that means they're being abolished. It's actually in the present tense. It's a present participle. It means now they're already on the way out. They're already going out. God's not preserving them. 1 John 2, 17, the world is passing away. Right now it's passing away. The governments of this world, all of them, without exception, have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Their wisdom is not wise. God's not going to preserve it. So what does this have to do with Bible teaching? Well, if the world and the rulers in our age and everyone that backs them up don't have God's wisdom, who's going to give it to them? Who's going to give the people God's wisdom? If the church dilutes the gospel, truncates biblical teaching, where are the people going to get God's mind? 
thing you can see is nowhere. The full gamut of biblical truth, all that God has said, he said is valuable and is a treasure. Preach it, teach it, understand it, appropriate it, pass it on. Some of you can help do that. You can help with electronics. You can help with our evangelism. You can help with, in other ways, to support teachers in this church. Or you can rise up and God may choose you as a teacher. But anyway, it's, it's embedded in the fabric of what our understanding of not only the message is, but what the method is here is to, is to promote the Word of God. We are all servants of the Word of God. Our teaching in this community is desperately needed. Do you believe that? Our teaching, our preaching, our literature, it's desperately needed in this wise community because they don't have wisdom. Churches that are Bible churches are the most important establishment in the entire community. They're the only ones that can lead people to understand reality and truth and the future. We're the only institution that can do that along with the other Bible teaching churches. That's our commission. That's the need. It's a great and it's a desperate need. Our diplomas count for eternity. Theirs don't. The church must stop burying Bible teaching as if they're ashamed of it when it is the one thing that's so desperately needed. Third truth. Bible teaching reveals God's secrets. That's verse 7. But we speak God's wisdom. Now, here it comes. He's advancing his argument a little bit here. In a mystery. We speak it. How do we speak it? In a mystery. Mysterion. When you hear that word, you think of Sherlock Holmes. You think of some riddle. You think of UFOs. You think of something mysterious. That's not what the term means in Greek. The term in Greek means a secret. It means something that God had planned, something that God was going to do, but he didn't reveal it. He kept it close to the chest, so to say. He's not revealing it. But now, in the New Testament age, since Christ and his apostles came, it's a secret that he has now revealed. He's now uncovered it. He's now pulled off the cover, and he said, here it is. Here's the secret. In times past, all the things that God was going to do in New Testament times through the church and everything were not known. It was a secret. It was covered up. It was a mystery in that sense. But God has taken that off, and he's revealed it. Bible teaching then takes that, that revealing of that message and says to the world or to anyone that wants to listen, here is what God's plan was. If you want to know the meaning of life, don't go to the Buddhist monk. He doesn't know. He'll even tell you he doesn't know. He'll just ask you questions. That's all he's going to do. He doesn't know the truth. The truth is here. It's the secret that has now been revealed. Listen, there are a lot of things, a lot of things we don't know. But God has revealed the mystery of life and the mystery of what he's doing and where he's going through his son and through the apostles writing in the New Testament. And that's why if we don't take it and unfold it and unleash it and explain it and unpack it in all of its glory, people won't get it. If God took time to reveal a secret and he says, I've kept this hidden in ages past, but now I am revealing it, then isn't it our obligation and duty to make sure we don't try to muzzle God or cover that back up. God himself is the fountainhead of all knowledge. He is the paragon of wisdom, and when he takes a message and unveils it, it's the job of the servants of God to unveil it. It's a mysterion. It's a secret now revealed. Paul wrote about this in his other epistles, too. I wish I had more time to explain this, but it's a, a fascinating topic in his writings. 
Paul said that his ministry to the Gentiles was to bring to light the mystery, and he put this, which for ages was hidden in God. That's a pretty good place to hide something, isn't it? If you hide something in your backyard, that's not bad, but you hide something in God, nobody's ever going to see that. But now, he says, it's been revealed. In Colossians 1.26, he says, God's mystery has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. It's a marvelous story. It's a marvelous plan. What's contained in the New Testament goes way beyond what we had in the Old Testament in terms of the brightness of the light. The Old Testament was true, but it left us anticipating a a further and a future fantastic revelation. And that's what the New Testament is. It's a revealing. God chose to keep certain things secret about himself and his plan, and he's chosen now to reveal that. And please notice the way he describes this mystery. It's the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. It's hidden not to us. It's hidden not to believers. It's not hidden to the mature, but to those in the world. They still don't get it. They're blinded by Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, you know that verse, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. They still have a veil over their eyes. It's still hidden. They're still, they're still blind. Yet for us, this mystery that's now been revealed... This mystery was predestined to our own glory. Predestined means exactly that. It was destined ahead of time that you and I would be led to glory through this gospel. The wisdom of God in the cross was the eternal plan of God, predestined before the ages. What does that mean? Before the creation of the world, before time itself, God predestined this message to lead to your eternal glory. Your eternal glory, predestined in ages past through this message. What a powerful and beautiful message. The rulers of this age are coming to nothing. God predestined a plan to bring us to glory. That's what preaching the Bible reveals. It reveals God's condemnation of the rulers of the world, God's rejection of all those that reject His Son, God's rejection of every every kingdom and every establishment that does not bow the knee to King Jesus. The Bible reveals their doom. That's why they hate it. It reveals the end of their days. It reveals the end of their reign. It shows they end in perdition. It's coming, and it's coming soon. But it also reveals the joy of the saints, the glory of the saints, the future of the saints that was predestined. Nobody can break that plan of God. That's a message God wants trumpeted because it glorifies Him. He wants the world to know of their doom. He wants the saints to know of their glory. So preach all of the Word of God. When the message is muzzled, how will Christ be glorified? How will the saints understand their future? How will the world be warned that their lifestyle is unacceptable to God? Before all time, God planned the gospel of the cross to bring you and me to glory. It's a secret, but it's now revealed, and we are to preach it in all of its glory. You follow the world's advice you're going to perish. You say you already have your own religion, you'll die in that religion and in your sins. 
You say you, you wanted to follow Christ, but you haven't really chosen to follow him. You want to believe in him, but you don't want to obey him and do what he says. That's not faith. Faith means you turn your life over to Christ. You say you're my Lord and my Savior. You follow him. You believe in his cross. You believe that wretched cross paid for your sins that you deserve to be on that cross, that God is going to do that to you because your life is unacceptable to him. If you don't accept the shame of the cross for you, there's no hope for you. That's the only way. That's the narrow way. That's the small gate. You got to bend yourself down low and be humble and walk through that and say, Christ, in myself, I know I'm rejected. I need you to save me. You're the Savior. When you do that, you have glory. When you resist that hated message, you can keep resisting it. You can keep waiting. You are under the wrath of God now. And there's no hope for you until you come to Christ. Beloved, we need to proclaim God's secrets. Lastly, I'll try to do this quickly. We teach the Bible even though the world resists the message. And here's where it really gets personal to us as a church. What if every visitor never came back? Would we meet in one of these rooms and say, we need to change tactics? Or we'd say, keep doing what God said. What would you do? What if you're on one of those committees one day? What are your convictions? Look at verse 8. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood it, for if they had understood it, you could kind of read something in there, they would have fallen down at the feet of Jesus and said, you're the Lord of glory, right? But they took him, as Peter says, like a worthless stone and tossed the stone away as worthless. Crucify him, crucify him. You say, that was just the Jews and the Romans. Oh, no, beloved. The Romans and the Jews stood for all of the kingdoms of the world. Listen, there's never been a greater, more powerful civilization on this planet than the Roman Empire. Even God says that in His Word. Trampled down all of the empires. There's never been an empire like the Roman Empire. Yes, they stood for the power of the world. There's never been a country that has brought the world true religion other than Israel. When the Jews and the Romans rejected Christ, they stood for the wisdom of all of the rulers of the world. Beloved, the Lord of glory, the creator of those stars you saw last night in the clear sky, that God came to this planet in human form as a true human being. And the wise and educated and elite people of this world took him and nailed him to a cross. They hated him. They rejected him. The night before that happened, Christ said to his followers, if they hate me, they're going to hate who? You. That just goes with the territory. That goes with following Christ. They crucified the Lord of glory. Of course, a lot of them are going to hate the message we have. No, you can't live that way. No, that is wrong sexual behavior. Of course they're going to hate that. There is a doom that is coming. There is a real hell. It burns with fire and brimstone. We're not saying that to try to get your money. It's real. And it's going to be your destiny if you don't turn to our Jesus. It's not a trick. It's truth. 
Accept the shame, accept the embarrassment, accept the humility and the degradation now. So you don't have to accept it then. Because then it'll hurt a lot more. It'll last a lot longer. And there'll be no hope. That's the message. Pilate, Caiaphas, Herod, Annas, men who forever will go down as fools who rejected the Lord of glory. That title, the Lord of glory, crucified, the Lord of glory, that's speaking of Jesus. You know that, right? If anyone ever wondered, was Jesus actually God? There's your answer. To give the title, the Lord of glory, to any created thing would be absurd. He is the Lord of glory. He rules glory. He exudes glory. His life is glorious. His future will shine with glory. He's the master of all glory. That's God. What an amazing statement. The Lord of glory was crucified. There you go. There you go. There's the collective wisdom of all of the world's religions and all of the world's politic. There it is. If you're on the left side, that's their wisdom. If you're on the right side, that's their wisdom. If you're in the middle, that's their wisdom. They killed the Lord of glory. And God took that message, that action, and turned it into the act that would save anybody who would respond and believe, that cross. That's the wisdom of God. That's the power of God. That hated cross, the message of the cross, that this book talks about again and again and again. No matter which book we go to, there it is. Christ, his kingdom, his crucifixion, his rejection, his resurrection, his ascension, his glory, his future kingdom. That's what it's all about. That's why we preach it. Long, sometimes very long. So that you get it. So that your mind is caught up in it. So that we get past a few little texts and tweets, nice platitudes, and you think and it absorbs deep into you and it changes your life, changes the way you think, changes who you are, grabs hold of your emotions. The doctrines now live in your heart because the Holy Spirit wrote those doctrines and the Holy Spirit's in your heart. Why would we ever stop doing that? I pray we never do. I pray you always have convictions. If God takes some of the present leaders home, you have those convictions. If God takes some of you elsewhere, you find someone who has those convictions and you get behind them and you support them. That's what God's doing. That's what God wants. He wants his message preached in all of its glory. That means study. That means read. That means become not just good at sitting there, but as they say, good expository listeners. What did you write down today? What are you taking home today? Did you endure 45, 50 minutes? Or did you grow from 45, 50 minutes? Beloved, in church history, there are people that walk a long time to listen to the Word of God preached for hours. Decide whether or not you want to be conformed to this age 
or you want to be transformed by the mercies of God for the age to come. Father, do take this message in this text and help our people see the beloved beauty of your wisdom, your word, your mysteries, your predestined plan, and your glory. Save a soul, Father, who hears this and thinks there's wisdom of the world and realize they don't know where we came from and where we're going. They can't be true educators. Help them to see that, Lord. Help them to understand that and believe in Christ crucified this day. And help your church, Hope Bible Church, be faithful to the word, but to do more than talk about doctrines, to love you passionately for all of this truth points to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You are the embodiment of the word of God. We dedicate our church to the next year of your glory. And all God's saints said together,